This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. You know, we hear often from patients and from individuals in society that, you know, they're interested in it, but they're fearful of even discussing it with their doctor because it still has this aura of being sort of an illegal, dangerous drug. We know now that that isn't the case, and we're working towards trying to break down those stigmas and making that conversation, you know, more prevalent and easier amongst patients. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. We'll hear about healthy holiday party planning. We'll learn how to eat nutritiously on a budget. And lastly, we'll find out about Stomach Cancer Awareness Day. Dr. Jonathan Simone is the Director of Research and Clinical Studies at AFRIA and serves as the primary liaison between the company's medical and scientific divisions and external research centers. Dr. Simone's research into neurobiology and pharmacology of cannabis and cannabinoids has been recognized with numerous awards, both nationally and internationally, and his work has been consistently published in high-quality, peer-reviewed scientific journals. And you've got a new gig too, don't you? Uh, I do, yeah. I've been recently appointed as uh, adjunct professor of biological sciences at Brock University in St. Catharines. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. That's exciting. And so you're going to get to talk about medical cannabis to students now, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. A little bit of speaking to students. I'll have the opportunity to, to supervise some students doing research as well as um, to do some, some of my own research there as well. Fantastic. So talking about cannabis is what we're talking about today because it's, it's not my an favorite easy, thing. Yeah. yeah but, but it's not an easy conversation. I mean, historically, there have been challenges to doing that, right? Absolutely. Um, from a, a societal level, there's been, you know, some sort of negative preconceptions about cannabis, some, some false information that's been perpetuated over, you know, several decades now and, and kind of driving this negative stigma around medical cannabis. And I think, you know, as an industry and, and as a culture right now, we're starting to move away from that and really starting to understand, you know, some of the, the benefits that medical cannabis can provide to a vast number of patients across the country. Right. I mean, you're not starting at ground zero, right? It's not a fresh new drug. Right? Like it, it has a history, right? And people, Absolutely. people didn't think of it as being therapeutic. They thought of it as, hey, it's recreational. It's recreational. Exactly. So that's a preconceived notion. What are some of the other sort of more specific ideas that you're fighting? For sure. So I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with that sort of reefer madness kind of propaganda that was generated, you know, decades ago, again, with right. been dealing almost say, 80 to 100 years of kind of the stigmatization of, of cannabis as a bad drug, of a gateway drug of, of like you said, no real medicinal value, strictly uh, recreational and things of that nature. And you know, certain research is actually being co-opted to almost drive some of these negative stigmas. So, um, you know, most people have probably heard that thing that cannabis can kill brain cells. And this this originated from a study done in the in the 1970s. And that study was was inherently flawed. And and what we know now from a lot of the really great research being generated, and even from some research I did, I did as a graduate student at Brock University, cannabis and cannabinoids, the active components in the cannabis uh, plant, can actually drive the generation of new brain cells and can actually act neuroprotectively on on brain cells and, and kind of protect the brain from certain pathologies and injuries. So we, we're starting to, to kind of shine a light on where a lot of that 
misinformation was laid in and starting to supplement that with, with more accurate and, and kind of modern information that, that speaks to a more kind of clear picture of, of medical cannabis and the properties and the, the benefits and the risks as well associated. Right. And I think a lot of it, historically, the stigma also flowed from the fact that it was illegal. Absolutely. And there are political agendas to creating sort of, uh, you know, as you called it, the reefer madness, you know, storyline, which, you know, would mesh with, hey, you shouldn't do this. It's illegal. And it's illegal because yada, yada, yada. Right. And yeah. And that, I mean, that, that's been a huge hindrance to, to medical cannabis because that's sort of driven this fear of discussing cannabis even as a, as a medicine um, amongst the population. So, you know, we hear often from patients and from individuals in society that, you know, they're interested in it, but they're, they're fearful of even discussing it with their doctor because it still has this aura of being sort of an illegal, uh, dangerous drug. And, and we, you know, we know now that that isn't the case and, and we're working towards trying to, to break down those stigmas and, and making that conversation, you know, more prevalent and, and easier amongst patients. Right. And, and I think the other spinoff problem with it being historically historically illegal is that there wasn't really a lot of studies done in a real way. I mean, there were some anecdotal studies, but nobody would invest in the cost of doing clinical studies because it was an illegal substance and and therefore it wasn't marketable, right? Yeah. And there was a lot of, you know, say, um, for lack of a better term, prohibitions against the research. So, for, for instance, you know, researchers in the United States, they still to this day have a very difficult time in, in driving forward a lot of cannabis research and, and you know, getting access to the cannabis itself to study um, is very problematic there. From a, a Canadian standpoint, it's been happening for some time. And, and you know, the research field for, for cannabinoids and endocannabinoid system and that sort of thing is Going back now, uh, you know, 30 plus years and THC was first really characterized in 1964. So we've had evidence being generated that whole time, but it's really been restricted largely to preclinical studies. So what I mean by that is, you know, cells grown in, in dishes or, or oh, non, really? non-human animals. So we get a lot of proof of concept, but we don't always see that translate directly back to humans, nor, like you said, do we have the clinical studies to, to say that that proof of concept is applicable back to humans. And that's sort of the era that we're entering now is, is we're starting to see more research studying really what are these effects within humans. And, and what's really been great in sort of the post-legalization era is more and more researchers are starting to show an interest in studying cannabis and, and medical cannabis. So we're starting to see more research being conducted. And as more professors and more researchers tackle this area, necessarily more graduate students and sort of the new generation or next generation of researchers are also being exposed to cannabis research. And we're really going to see sort of that door fly open. And I think we're going to start seeing that the number of studies increase you know, exponentially over the coming years. So where are we in terms of that synthesis? So are we at the point now where the, the research is out? Are we a few years away? Are we months away like like you're the ground yeah you're on the ground level so (laughs) i would say all of the above so i would say depending on the the level of evidence that you're looking for from those preclinical standpoints how does this drug work when it gets into the body and gets into the brain and what are the specific cellular and molecular mechanisms we have you know 30 plus years of information to support that and we have a fairly good understanding of of how that's happening where we're starting to lack and where i think over the you know the coming years say in the next uh two to four years we're going to start seeing a lot more information generated on the specific medical efficacy of these drugs. So how does that specific combination of cannabinoids or or how does that specific product format drive effects for this specific medical condition? So we've kind of built this foundation of understanding, okay, in very um, basic terms, how does this work when it gets into the body? Now we can move into the next step of saying, okay, how can we use this information to understand the medicinal effects better? But also, how do we understand the 
risk factors associated with cannabis use, which I, I think is a huge part of that. That's what I was going to ask you next. I guess now that we're, we're doing these studies in a clinical setting, we're also probably for the first time looking into what is the long-term use effects of cannabis yeah. on the system, which Absolutely. probably wasn't done before, right? Again, uh, largely in, in, say, rodent models, so mice and rats and things of that nature. We, Yeah, you're right. Like that, Those kind of long-term consequences haven't been looked at. And I think, you know, part and parcel of, of responsible drug practices and, and being a, you know, a responsible industry when it comes to medicating patients is, is understanding both the benefits and the risks that are associated. And like any drug, there are side effects that are associated with that. And, and well, the, we call it the adverse event profile associated with cannabis use is quite a bit more mild compared to other prescription medications like opioids and benzodiazepines and things of that nature. There are still some adverse events, some side effects that do need to be acknowledged. And, and the more we can understand that, the more we can educate patients on the, the risks and benefits and the more we can educate doctors and make them more comfortable in, in prescribing medical cannabis or at least having that conversation with their patients. Right. And, and I think, you know, with the, with the federal government sort of saying, yeah, it's OK, we're, we're opening this up where, you know, medical cannabis is a good thing. It's legal and and leaving aside the recreational for a moment. Lost in that is there are risks such as people can be allergic to it or, or people may respond negatively with symptomology or, you know, there are people who perhaps addiction is too strong a word, but you can develop a, a need for it. Yeah, we characterize it as a what's called a cannabis use disorder. Right. Um, and, and that's definitely something that is a, a risk associated with, with cannabis use. It tends to be most prevalent in um, sort of young adult male populations and yep. demographics, though not to say that others outside of that demographic can't be affected. And there's, you know, kind of the more what you would assume as is, is kind of typical cannabis side effects of so things like um, yeah, <laughs> uh, hunger, fatigue, uh, dizziness, nausea, L- um, lack of short term memory. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That tends to be a bit more focused to while the drug is in the body right, exactly. um, and, and with a fairly say kind of quick recovery from that after a period of abstinence. Absolutely. So can you talk about some of the things you're, you're looking into personally or not in any uh, great deal? One of the, the things I can talk about is actually a great sort of program that we've developed in partnership with a group called ortho evidence and ortho evidence is sort of the premier global online resource for clinical research that's focused on orthopedic medicine. So things like uh, chronic musculoskeletal pain and, and, you know, knee injuries and hip injuries and things of that nature. And in partnership with uh, OrthoEvidence, we've created what's called the My Cannabis Evidence online portal. And the best way to really think about this is sort of the Netflix for clinical research on cannabis evidence. So um, it's basically an online platform that provides you access to all of, or I shouldn't say all, but the highest quality randomized clinical trials focusing on cannabis as a treatment right now for chronic non-cancer pain. And, you know, often it can take some time to dig into a real clinical published paper. It can right. take, you know, up to an hour to really read through that. And, and Are these summarized? These then? are summarized. Yeah, it can take you about five minutes to go through and to, to really read and understand a study, what it was trying to accomplish, what the take-home is, you know, what the quality of that evidence is. And it puts a all in one really convenient location and and it's really geared towards researchers and healthcare professionals to give them easy access to this information and make sure that they're keeping up with the the flow and the progress of research in the field. And um, it also gives, similar to Netflix, you know, what are other people watching that have watched this? If if you've read a certain paper, it will also say, well, here's what other orthopedic surgeons that have read this paper have read. So it will show you what your peers are assessing as well. And um, doctors can also uh, attain what are called continuing medical education credits from this platform. So um, a way to sort of uh, 
keep up with uh, the requirements of their their regulatory bodies and things of that nature. So is this kind of like organized as a B2B site in, in terms of people within the industry sort of keeping up on the research or can a layperson check in and, and, and find out about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anybody can can access the, this information. It's really geared towards scientific uh, and, and healthcare professional okay. background uh, uh, type individuals that would have um, at least sort of that, that base knowledge of the science and and the terminology that goes in with it. So let's talk about how this research helps us have cannabis discussions. Where, where, how do you think it's helpful? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, sort of two main arms to that. And I think the first one is the patient-focused arm. So having that research is going to arm patients. It's going to equip them with with knowledge and information that will make them feel more comfortable about even approaching the idea of medical cannabis. And I think, you know, um, it's, it's fairly well understood now that people in general are getting fed up with a lot of the, the current pharmaceutical approaches to things and, and they want to be able to, to explore alternatives or things that are just more in line with their values as a patient. And I think having that information, having the research that says, you know, we can talk to you about the benefits and the risks associated with this and help you make the best, um, the best decision for your own healthcare treatment is definitely one arm of that. I think the other um, and, and equally as important is educating the physicians themselves. So Right. One of the biggest issues to having conversations about medical cannabis, if you're interested in approaching that as a patient, is there are a lot of physicians, and rightfully so, that are hesitant about prescribing because of the, the sort of lack of evidence that exists. And I think the more that we can generate um, you know, quality evidence to support, again, both the risks and the benefits of medical cannabis is going to make physicians more comfortable with having that conversation with their patients, more comfortable in prescribing that, that uh, medical cannabis drug to their patients. And, and I think you know, when we can target both the patient populations and the physician populations with accurate and high quality evidence and information to help equip them and arm them, then necessarily we're going to see um, increases in the, the amount of comfort that goes into having conversations about medical cannabis. Are the, uh, you may not know the answer to this, but are the medical schools teaching about cannabis now? So the last I heard about this is no, not really. I think that there might be a couple that are doing very short courses or, or you know, uh, units, for lack of a better term, on medical cannabis. But for the most part, my understanding, and, I, and again, I could be um, slightly off on this, is that it's not something that's covered in, in any great detail in medical schools. And what that means is that it's up to these physicians and these prescribing doctors to go out on their own and learn about this. And, and that's very time-consuming to do, and it can be quite difficult because there's, you know, a lot of information and a lot of conflicting information and high quality and low quality information. So um, things like our My Cannabis Evidence Portal are, are ways that we um, are sort of helping physicians gain that information and, and educate themselves. So, I, and you may have already answered this, but are, are, are the physicians required to educate themselves about this? Like when I was practicing law, I had an ongoing obligation to uh, make myself aware of new law coming out, the common law, right. I'm required to know what it is so I can advise my clients. Are, are the doctors required to, to learn about cannabis so that they can advise their patients? That's a great question. And I don't believe there's any specific mandate or, or obligation on their part to, to go out and understand that. Um, I think that it's something that as more and more physicians are seeing more and more patients inquiring about it and seeing the benefits of it, um, they're, they're gaining an interest in it. And, and ultimately, physicians want the best for their of patients. Course. So if yeah. they start to see that, okay, there's something here, then they'll take it upon themselves to go out and to you know, um, do some of their research, go to conferences, uh, attend seminars, and things of that nature. Absolutely. So if they were to do that, what would they find out about cannabis and, and how, uh, you know, how the 
cannabis affects the body and, and how it affects our systems. Yeah, so, um, you know, it, that's an interesting story. And, and cannabis really exerts its effects through a system we call the endogenous cannabinoid system. And we, we short form that as the endocannabinoid system. And right. um, this system is comprised of sort of two main receptors. And you can think of it as sort of a lock and key mechanism where these receptors are distributed all throughout your brain and body. And they act as sort of this lock and Cannabinoids, so things like THC, will act as the key and they'll unlock that lock and open a door and allow biochemical and physiological processes to occur. Um, and what's really interesting about that is we don't have this system so that we can consume cannabis and, you know, get a recreational high or, or experience medical benefits. We have it because our brain and body produces its own forms of, of cannabis that we call endocannabinoids. And, and they regulate everything from, you know, mood and emotion, learning and memory, um, immune responses, gastrointestinal, sleep and wake cycles and all of that. Um, so it's really cannabis sort of hijacking this endogenous system that we have that is, is responsible for a lot of the medical benefits that we see. And there are more than... Two or three cannabinoids or cannabinoids, cannabinoids yeah. right? How many are there? There's so that's a great question too. I think the the largest I've I've seen is about 120 right. or so. And we usually say about over 100 cannabinoids. Yeah, and we don't know what most of them do, right? We know um, about two of them really well, and right. then the, the rest we're still in the. It's kind of the next frontier of, of cannabis research is really going to be understanding what these what we'll call secondary or lower abundance cannabinoids are, are doing when it comes to to driving medical benefits. Right now, um, most of what we know is with uh, regards to, to THC. Tetrahydrocannabinol right. and yep. cannabidiol or, or CBD. But yes, there's, there's you know, hundreds of, of these, or I shouldn't say hundreds, but over a hundred of these cannabinoids that are thought to, to possess sort of bioactive and, and pharmacological properties. And, and you know, the, the sort of prevailing idea right now is that it's all of these compounds that are working sort of in concert to create this, this symphony of effects that, that drives these medical benefits. So with everything that's going on, what excites you where do you see the research going that makes you really happy? That Do you think it's going to benefit us? Oh, that's a great question. I think what excites me the most is the idea of all of this untapped potential. So on top of these, you know, 120 cannabinoids in this plant, we also have, you know, hundreds of what are called terpenes that are generally associated with the smell profile, the scent profile of the different cannabis varieties. But there's also some evidence starting to emerge that they may also be affecting some sort of, uh, say, uh, pharmacological actions or, or medical actions. And, and then we have other classes of compounds like flavonoids and things of that nature. And I think as we start to, to investigate those things systematically and tease apart all the different compounds of the plant, I think we're going to start to understand that there is a lot more medical benefit than we, we ever imagined that we can derive from this plant. And, and I think that's really where the next wave of research is going to go is what are the next THC and CBD and, and how can we start to, to combine these certain things to create formulas that are specific to target very specific indications, right? So how can we have something that will target inflammation versus anxiety or pain or, or that sort of thing? Fantastic. Well, we would love to have you come back again. I would love what, to be back. Yeah. When this research comes out, you can tell us all about what you're learning. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. It was great to be here. And thanks for having me. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break. But when we return, we'll learn about healthy holiday planning on The Tonic. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. 
The new 8,300-square-foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy, and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage, and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory, plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. High quality means high value with a revolutionary online event planning service called EventSpot. Based in Toronto, eventspot.ca provides everyone with the opportunity to host top caliber events with all-inclusive options at value pricing or custom planning starting at $99. It takes just a few clicks to book. Within 48 hours, you get confirmation of your party created by EventSpot's expert team of professionals drawing from a deep list of 800 plus vendors. Corporate events, milestone celebrations, kids' birthday parties and weddings. EventSpot has it covered with an out-of-the-box experience. You could be hosting your stress-free event in just 10 days after booking. Show up at your own party knowing that EventSpot pros have done it all. Visit eventspot.ca to hire a planner or to explore EventSpot's party-in-a-box options. eventspot.ca. Pick. Click. Pate. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Stacey Evans, is the Director of Event Planning Services for EventSpot. She has over 15 years' experience in the event industry, managing and producing trade shows, galas, and corporate events in the GTA and across Canada. Stacey has worked with some of the world's most recognizable brands, including America's Next Top Model, John Frieda, Pandora, Schwarzkopf Professional, Sick Kids Foundation, Sutherland Models, and Toyota. Stacy's committed to creating only the highest quality events with attention to every last detail. Her primary goal is to ensure the EventSpot team of planners is truly the best in the business. She's assembled a team of top-notch event professionals from across the GTA to create unique event experiences executed flawlessly and professionally. Welcome to The Tonic. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. People are used to the idea of hiring a party planner for, let's say, a wedding. Mm -hmm. But why would they do so for a smaller, less informal event? Hiring a planner allows, you know, a person to enjoy their event more and to enjoy their guests more. We take away the stress. We take away all the pre-planning. A lot of people I find um, the biggest question they have is like, I don't, how do I do a creative event or how do I do something unique? And, and some people just don't have the ideas or their concepts. They don't know how to execute it. And that's why a professional can come in and, and take that place for you and make sure that you show up to your event, you have fun, you're relaxed, you enjoy your guests, and you have a great time. Yeah, I host events through my magazine. So mm-hmm. we, we have uh, events where we draw um, as many as 1,000 people over the course of the day or 3,000 right. in, in some So they're big events. And when I first started doing it, the thing that occurred to me was I didn't even know what I didn't know, right? There's little details that a professional will know about what needs to be done for a party really of any size, Right. that if you just haven't done it before, you're not even turning your mind to it, right? Correct. That's absolutely correct. And and that's just like any industry. I mean, if you hire a professional, that's what you're going to get, a professional planner who's going to execute things flawlessly for you with no stress on your side. Right. So I think what everybody strives for, whether they're doing it professionally or even privately, is if you're hosting an event, you want it to be memorable. You want people to really enjoy their experience. So right. in, in your in your expertise, what are some of the things in an event that make it that sort of memorable event? 
I always recommend having some sort of interactive element, um, something that just sets the party apart, something that's unique, something that's fun and engages your guests right off the get-go. Maybe it's as simple as when they arrive at the party, you've got like a signature drink for that party that they've never had before, and you can you you, you break down the barriers to start talking about this special drink. Um, maybe it's um, you know karaoke or it's a, um, a photo booth. It's something to get people relaxed and into the party frame of mind. Any experience that is like interactive creates memories in and of itself. So that's always my recommendation. You want people to have fun. You want them to walk away from the event going, that was cool. I had a great time. What are some of the mistakes that people make with their events uh, that you've experienced? Uh, in my 15 years, uh, the biggest thing I would say is that people overcomplicate events. I think the best advice I would give somebody is keep it simple. Focus on maybe two or three elements of the event and execute it flawlessly. Make sure it runs smoothly. Like Make sure it's done to perfection. If you have too many elements, um, you're more likely to make mistakes. You're more likely to forget things. And it's more likely to probably have a few hiccups along the way. And the reality is events always have hiccups. You know, Your guests probably are never going to be aware of them. You just want to make sure that you um, execute it flawlessly and seamlessly and go with the flow. And people enjoy themselves. They won't even know that that one little missing element didn't happen or didn't happen correctly. Yeah. Yeah. In your head, you think it's this horrific. Right. Like like I've been up on stage thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. And everybody must be mortified. People don't notice the mistakes. Right. And if you draw attention to them, you know, then they will. But but (laughs) I would say they they don't know what they don't know. Exactly. That's exactly When it. you're talking about elements, what do you mean? Do you mean like entertainment or food or, or, or what all, do you mean? Any and all of those things. Like uh, entertainment is a big one. And again, it just depends on the size and scale of your event and if you can afford it, first of all. But entertainment is an easy one. Maybe it's it's a musician. Maybe it's a, some sort of interactive performer. That can just cut the tension of an event and, and engage people and get them laughing. Even as simple as something as like a, a family party, have a game so that when people come in the door, any stress or any um, preconceived notions of about the event, just kind of go out the door and people just relax and have fun. We have family holiday parties every every holiday season right. and it's a generational thing. Everybody who's older likes it because they can sort of be amongst their people and see all the generations. But the kids, you know, they reach a certain age where the toys just don't do it anymore and they're kind of like rolling their eyes and we hosted one year and we set up a poker table Mm -hmm. and that made all the difference in the world no we were not taking the kids money we were you know (laughs) we were playing for cookies but 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 it made a difference and they learned a skill so if i'm planning a party whatever the scale should i start with my event and then figure out what it's going to cost or should i set a budget first and then figure out what i can do for the budget I would say set your budget because you don't want to go overboard. And that's what ultimately always happens because you start to see this looks really neat and this looks great. And I want this element. And then the cost just ticks up and up. So I would say, okay, start off. This is what I'm going to spend on this event and then stick to it and start to source vendors who can make that happen, can facilitate it for you. And you and you can be upfront with them right from the beginning. This is my budget when it comes to food. This is my budget for the venue and stick within that budget. And, and that's again why I circle back to hiring a planner because they'll help you stick within that that budget. You're up front, you say this is what it's going to cost, and then um, the expert planner can make it happen and, and keep you within that framework. So like, if you're starting with budget then, what are some ways to save money when you're hosting an event? What sort of elements, uh, like if you're going to cut costs, where would you start? 
So decor is a big one where you can do some really unique creative things that aren't going to break the bank. Um, like I often tap into my friend network. I have lots of people who are so amazing when it comes to decor and so creative. And they've got some really cool concepts that they can help you execute. They may have items within their home that you can borrow or utilize within that event and then give back to them. So I always suggest look around you to people you know. Photographers are a great one. Like lots of people have become so much more um, skilled at taking really great photography so there's a savings there if you have a friend who can do that for you ask them and and utilize your own network to save some money sometimes if you pick the right venue you have to spend less on decorations because it's so naturally beautiful to start off with that you 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 don't have to adorn it so for example with the event that i was telling you about before Mm -hmm. we do it at the distillery district which beautiful you know it's it's a gorgeous day outside and that's what people love the venue is probably just as important to the actual event than what's actually happening. So Right. It sets the mood. It sets the tone. It gives you that atmosphere. Like sometimes um, people say, I just want a, a blank slate. And that just creates a lot more challenges and a lot more expense because you have to jazz it up and make it look really warm and inviting and yep. you know exciting to be at. Okay. So because we're a health and wellness program, let's sort of focus on, on that element of, mm-hmm. of party planning. So do you have any tips for anybody who wants to host a mindful or an eco-friendly event? So, I mean, it sounds a bit cliche, but you always go back to the reduce, reuse, recycle. So I'm a big proponent of like less paper at an event. If you can, just try to avoid it. Um, when it comes to serving food, like make sure you're not using like throwaway items or plastic utensils. Um, really make it clear that, you know, it's easy for the guests to recycle at your event. One of my big pet peeves, if you go to an event and you have something you want to recycle and there's not enough containers or they're not well labeled or you're searching for someplace to recycle it. So make sure that your guests, it's easy for them that they can see, okay, I just go over here and this is what I, where I need to recycle. The other thing, you can also like repurpose uh, things for your events. Like, like I mentioned before too, like going to a thrift shop to get some decor. So you're not going out and actually buying brand new items, like try to repurpose things within your home, within your friend network or from outside sources. Yeah. And I guess one problem with being eco-friendly or being mindful or being environmentally responsible does it can add extra cost to your event. So you really sort of, you have to think about that if you're prioritizing, you just have to be sort yeah. of mindful of what the mindfulness is going to cost right. you. It sometimes can and sometimes not. Like as far as, as far as food goes, like there's so many great caterers out there who subscribe to the 100 mile diet and right. they, they use local farmers. And so try to work with the, the local people within your community and, and you know, you'll feel good about supporting local businesses and local farmers as well. So now that we're talking about catering and food, uh, what tips do you have for people who are hosting and maybe have guests who have special diets or special needs or maybe you want to go organic? You know, it used to be a challenge, but honestly, it's not anymore. There's so many great options out there. I can't think of a single caterer that I've worked in the past who can't accommodate a special diet or wouldn't be willing to look at organic options. So uh, as a consumer, if that's important to you and that's what you want within your event, there are more than enough options out there today. And and, and that's why a company like ours can assist you in that. They can help you source those vendors who are going to fulfill the need for for your event. Okay. And lastly, we're, we're going to come to the, the type of person who has an event coming up, but maybe has left things to the last minute. So I presume that party in the box component that you have in your business would be perfect for them because it's all kind of done and, and ready, right? Party in a box just lets the, the consumer not have to think about things. They just show up to their party and have fun. It's literally like pick, 
click and party and we have all the elements pulled together for you. We can turn it around in 10 days. So if you've got something really last minute that you want to have executed, come to us, look at our really creative, unique concept and we'll make it happen for you. No stress. So particularly this time of year with office parties, what's your website they should reach out to? www.eventspot.ca. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn how to eat healthy on a budget on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. You can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this topic, Jamie. Yeah, me too. Because, you know, we talk a lot, a lot about food on this show. And I love food. It's one of my great loves. But eating well and eating healthy can be expensive. You can certainly do it well by spending a lot of money on it. but But there's a trick, I think. I think there's a way to eat healthy without breaking the bank. And that's what I want to focus in on today. There is. And I actually have a lot of tips for you because I think this is a universal topic that everyone wants to discuss. 100%. Even if you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, people still want to shop productively and look for the deals out there. You know, everybody has their little pet things that they're prepared to spend money on, right? Some some people are prepared to pay a premium for prepared foods. Other people will look for certain ingredients that they Mm -hmm. value that perhaps have a premium attached. But but sorry, let's, we've defined it. Like, where would you start? Yeah, I like that you just said that actually, because everyone has their own thing. But let's try to get into what appeals to everybody in terms of tips and tricks. So for instance, to start off with, I would say at the beginning, there are some basic shopping tips um, before you go to the grocery store to prepare yourself. So number one, have a shopping list because the grocery stores are out there to sell. They have marketing techniques. If you don't know what you're going in for, you could buy too many things and your grocery bill is going to go up exponentially. 
Well, yeah. I mean, my wife makes fun of me for many reasons, but, one of the, <laughs> but, but for one of the, the, the one that she loves the most is my obsession with shopping lists. And actually, you and I have bumped into each other when we're shopping. Yeah. And you'll see me with my list yeah. because what we do is we plan out our meals for the week and I'm buying whatever isn't in the pantry. That's what I'm buying in one shop. That's what I'm doing. And that's what you're doing. Well, I don't know if if you fall into this trap, but do you fall into the trap of going to the grocery store hungry? Yes. Now, but I'm always hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. It's yeah. good to have a snack before you go. Because if right. you're hungry, you are going to, like studies show actually, yeah. that you're going to be picking up this and that without, you know... Well, there's certain stores that are worse for it, right? Like if you go to John Vince, which where it's like a bulk, the bulk store, the bulk stores, yeah. if you go in there, I mean, you can't not nosh as you're walking along. Exactly. I, I can contain myself when I'm doing the food I shop. avoid those stores for that very reason, for the reason of the little nonas with their hands yeah. Yeah, <laughs> in one, the bulk bin. Me, me right? too. Okay. So yeah. what, what other tips do you have? I have a lot of other tips. So what you want to do is you want to mim- minimize buying the food that someone else has prepared. Right. There's a lot of categories in that regard. The first category is prepared food. And I've been on the show many times talking about buy whole foods, minimize prepared foods, and try to avoid ultra processed foods. But you were in past, you were talking about it in the context of nutritional value. But here we're talking about it in terms of saving money. So is it really really a money saver to buy the raw ingredients? 100%. And I'm going to give you the example of pre-cut fruit or pre-washed vegetables, that type of thing. If someone else's hands have been on it that aren't your own, they are being paid to do that. Correct. So, um, yes, I understand convenience. But on the other hand, you could cut your grocery bill down by, I would say, 30 to 40 percent by prepping and chopping things yourself. That is usually how much they um, inflate the price. Sure. A cord pineapple is $7. Yes. Good a, example. A, a regular pineapple is $5. Or and, $3.99. $3.99. Yeah. And people think, oh, I don't want the hassle. Yes, it makes more garbage. I can prep an entire pineapple in under three minutes. If, See, you, have, if you have three minutes, you should be able to core and, and cut up a pineapple. You are so funny because you're just like me. I always say to people, Time yourself. See how long it takes to cut a pomegranate. Yeah. To me. Well, that's okay. Pomegranate no. is, is like a level. Like you, <laughs> like you really have to be committed to, to seed your own pomegranate. Yeah. Right? So uh, to be honest, I could, because uh, I'm a pro at a pomegranate yeah. now, but I could do a pomegranate in a minute 30 type or wow. two minutes. Naomi struggled for a good 10 minutes last night. 10 minutes. Yeah. She was, um, a, it was a pomegranate disaster. But that's also with mindful eating. Like it, yeah. if it takes you longer, you appreciate it more. I suppose, you know, there is a trade-off, right? Because I have the time to cook because I'm at home a lot. And I do cook most of the meals during the week. But you have to want to do that, right? I mean, at the end of the day, when we're talking about all of these tips to to save money, it it does require your own labor. Do you know what? I just thought of something. I'm recipe testing a butternut squash soup. And on my Instagram story yesterday, I actually showed people the pre-bought butternut squash. It was like a light yellow. And then I sliced up a butternut squash by myself. It was a dark, deep, golden color. And I thought to myself, because I'm doing this myself, I'm getting a better quality, not quality, but I get to choose. I get to see what I'm doing instead of someone else choosing the butternut squash for me. Okay. So how else can we save money? Let's focus in more on that. Okay. So another good point is if most people have phones with apps on them, there are a few apps out there. Um, Have you heard of the app Flip? I have not. 
Okay, so this app is actually a coupon app, and it、um, helps you with your weekly shopping. So what you can do is download the app, and you can. I think there's something like two thousand different stores on the app, and、mm-hmm. they comparatively shop for you. Isn't that cool? It is okay, but here's the thing, and,、mm-hmm. and that does sound great.、Mm-hmm. I'm I... already shopping more than I want to, and by,、okay. by, by that I mean driving here to get this, driving there to get、mm-hmm. that. I used to make fun of my mother because she would go shopping five times a week. But if I'm being honest with myself, I do one major shop at a big box, one at a very good family-owned grocery store where you and I、yes. see each other for the for the produce,、mm-hmm. and then I'll round out by going to high-quality butchers here or there. Or a bakery, or here or there. Like when you add it up, I'm shopping five times a week, and I don't know if it's worth my while to go racing around to this store or that store because it's marginally cheaper with these coupons. See, you have it down to a science. People who buy the same things all of the time. Let's say if you、um, develop recipes and you、right. you're a gourmet cook. So let's say if you're buying similar things, you're on a budget. It's a really good. Way to comparison shop and check out、Fair、where、enough. you can get it. So yeah, it's called Flip and it's an app. The other thing is, what I do, and I'm sure you do this, or I'm not sure if you do this. If do you have different cards like the Optimum card or you know different、yeah. cards where you can rack、yeah. up points? That's also a great way to save money because、sure. if you shop at the same place over and over for the same things,、yep. they recognize they market it that way. They recognize what you buy, and then they give you incentive to go back to that store. Yeah, I have a quote unquote executive card at one of the big boxes, which has a lot of organics、uh, mm-hmm. at the one I go to. I,、um, I go there too. And, and <laughs> they're like. For example, with berries, probably the cheapest berries in the city, and we go through no joke. Forty dollars worth of berries a week. Wow! And so you buy the big raspberries. And、Correct. I have to be honest. I also go to that store, and the raspberries are, are impeccable.、Yep. I buy three boxes. I do yeah. cooking demos. Yeah. So when I buy in bulk,、yeah. so that's actually an excellent point in terms of if you eat the same thing repeatedly, that's healthy. Go to the big box stores. You can buy it organic if you're the organic type. And organic used to be unattainable, unreachable. But in the big box stores, you can actually do it while you're on a budget. Correct. So that's very timely that we're talking about that. Yeah. And I have a few other tips. So, for instance, you have to make sure you have the hardware at home if you are going to pre-chop, pre-bulk. Cook and freeze food. So、yep. at, at the big box stores, you can get the Ziploc bags that are freezer friendly. Correct. It's funny because some people don't have that stuff, and I'm a huge advocate of having the glass bowls, the the、yep. freezer bags,、yep. so you can hand chop. So I'm going to give you. Another example: If you buy something like leeks, for instance, and they come in a bunch of two or three, and you know you're only going to be using one, chop it up. Put it in the freezer in the bag,、yep. and then that's actually a way to save money because you're not continuously buying it and throwing it out. Correct. And herbs also, it's another way. If you freeze herbs, put it in ice cube cubes. Like if you have a summer garden,、yep. for instance, that's a way of saving money too. Right. You could buy nuts in in bulk too and keep them in the freezer. They keep better. Yeah,、uh, they、uh, keep fresher, and、um, you just have to be equipped with the right. Bags. I know that sounds funny. No, no, no. You need you need freezer bags. You can't just use normal、uh, sandwich bags. And, yeah. And also, you know, having a couple of sets of the the glassware with、yeah. the with the plastic caps that you can microwave in. Way to save money is to make dinner, make a little bit extra, so you can have it for lunch the next day. Yeah. So if you have the storage. 
capabilities, the glassware that you can just pop into the microwave, you're saving time and you're saving money. Exactly. And a few more culinary tips I just want to drop before we finish is um, use the whole thing. So I came up with a recipe that's a carrot with a carrot top pesto or beet saute the beet greens. So use all of the produce. You will, it will be cheaper in the long run. You'll have less waste and it's also really healthy. Good tips. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Next month, uh, we're going to learn how to choose healthy meals when you don't like to cook. Mm -hmm. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about Stomach Cancer Awareness Day on The Tonic. Chronic stress has far-reaching negative effects on the mind and body. The Roziva brand of products offers natural and quick-acting solutions for health issues that might result from stress including fatigue, low mood and anxiety, cognitive decline, digestive disturbances, and poor sex life. To receive a six-day sample for any of the Roziva products, send an email to solutions at nantonnutra.com, N-A-N-T-O-N-N-U-T-R-A.com. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic magazine and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Teresa Tiano is a seven-year stomach cancer survivor. Teresa has over 15 years of experience in the non-for-profit world and 10 years of governance and administrative experience in the cancer sector directly. She's volunteered at St. Michael's Hospital, Carmelina's Home, and Caritas. She is a founder and director of My Gut Feeling. Her work with My Gut Feeling allows her to support patients so that no one has to go through the journey of stomach cancer alone. Welcome to the show, Teresa. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and uh, thank you for having me. So we're, we're speaking about Stomach Cancer Awareness Day, but where I'd like to start is with you and your personal journey. You were diagnosed with stomach cancer back in 2011, isn't that right? Yes. So explain to our audience what you went through and, and what was going on at that time. Okay. So in the summer of 2011, uh, I was experiencing some mild ulcer-like symptoms. It had been kind of going on for a a few months, and I wasn't feeling well, so I went to my doctor, and then I went to a specialist because I had been diagnosed uh, nine years prior with uh, bladder cancer, so I, I had been monitored every year. So I went to my specialist, took some tests, some oddities showed up, and he suggested that we do further testing. I wasn't experiencing any real uh, difficulty. Uh, You know, I didn't have a lot of symptoms. I just had ulcer-like symptoms. So, for instance, a little bit of acid reflux, upset stomach, and so I went for what is called um, an endoscopy and a colonoscopy. And once it was done, the doctor was taking a little bit too long to uh, come back into the patient room. Oh, so you knew Uh, something was up, yeah. And so 
I sort of figured something was up. Yeah. But when I heard the words, uh, you have stomach cancer, my world stopped. Yeah. I was completely taken aback because, to be perfectly honest with you, I was expecting him to say, you have colon cancer because that was kind of prevalent in my family. And mine as well. I understand that. Yep. So that was where my headspace was. And when he said stomach cancer, I was like, oh, uh, first thing was, I didn't even realize you could get stomach cancer. And I'm pretty well versed in the stomach, in the cancer sector and all of that. So he started to go on and on about how difficult this is going to be and that I'd have to have surgery, I might be in the hospital for two to four weeks. And as he kept talking, all I kept hearing was blah, 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 nothing got through. Yeah. Anyway, so I uh, approached, I went back to my other specialist, and he sort of helped me with going to seeing a, a great surgeon who saw me, and he suggested that we could do the surgery laparoscopically, which is minimally invasive. Yes, I did. I had stomach cancer. That was not uh, disputable. But his approach was much more realistic, a little bit more uh, less frightening. So from the time of diagnosis, my surgery was done within four weeks. Wow. Is stomach cancer one of those quick cancers that spreads rapidly? You have to uh, treat aggressively? Stomach cancer is one of those silent kind of deadly cancers. So by the time you actually are showing symptoms, Mm. it's often a diagnosis at uh, a later stage, which is stage three or four. So it's silent, but when it's at stage four, it is quite deadly. The five-year survival rate is about 25%. Wow. What's What's it like living with stomach cancer? Living with the diagnosis of stomach cancer is incredibly difficult. So I'm now considered because I'm eight years cancer-free. Congratulations. Yes. But going through everything that I went through, which was surgery, so they removed 80% of my stomach. Hmm. Then I had to have chemo and radiation concurrently. Hmm. So chemo and radiation at the same time. Yeah. So it was incredibly difficult because you have to learn how to eat all over again. Your entire body, your entire digestive system is reworked. Our bodies, those of us with either, you know, part of our stomach lost, or in my, in my case, it's eight, 20%, which is literally next to nothing, or those who have a total gastrectomy, we don't digest the way other people do. So everything goes right through to the intestine. So it doesn't go through the stomach, which is you know, the organ that kind of mulches things up and right. processes things. And gets so, all the nutrition out of the food. Yeah. And, so yeah. learning to eat, again, is incredibly difficult. I lost a total of 95 pounds. Wow. Which is pretty much another person. I did have the weight to lose, so that kind of was a positive for me, although I don't ever recommend that for no, anyone. That's so not, no, that's not really a silver yeah, lining. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing is it did help me in the sense of I managed to get through the chemo more easily than others. And the fact that I'd had laparoscopic surgery also helped because it was minimally invasive. But there's an incredible sense of, you know, you can't get nutrition in. Uh, You can't absorb things like iron, vitamins, B12. It's difficult to eat at all because certain foods 
lots of foods don't sit well with you. So it's not only the fact that, you know, you're fighting this disease, which in many cases could kill you, but if you're living with, you know, if you have no stomach, then you're always battling proper nutrients, enough calories, trying to gain weight, trying to maintain your weight. Yes. And so that's a long-term process. And to this day, which is eight years later, I still battle anemia. I still battle chronic fatigue. Uh, I still battle nausea. You know, I vomit. You know, some of the other things that people go through are uh, dumping syndrome. You know, people can't eat. So the reality is people can't even eat like a quarter of a hamburger in their first six months or a year. Some people can never go back to eating what normal is. And, and I guess that's why you, you started My Gut Feelings, right? To help people that are going through this? Yes, because when I was going through it, there was nothing out there in terms of being able to, to find support for other people that were going through it. So there was, you know, just no information. The information that was out there was incredibly dark. And I was so happy that I'd made it through that I really wanted to make sure and myself and my co-founder we really wanted to make sure that nobody went through this really difficult journey alone. So what are are some of the things that you do to help support people who may have been diagnosed with stomach cancer? So the mission of my gut feeling is that we provide peer-to-peer support to patients survivors and caregivers who are going through the stomach cancer journey and that's at every point of their journey so we have people reach out to us immediately after diagnosis possibly as they're starting their treatment or sometimes even after you know they've they've done their treatment it just depends when they find us our mission is to we do not provide medical information because we're not medical professionals it's all about personal experience and what we've gone through and the saying is unless you've been through it you can't truly understand and so our premise is we're here to help in any way we can any question that people any questions that people have we're there to answer in terms of really what the day-to-day challenges are whether it's you know, what to eat, how much exercise can I do? And it's really all personal, but that's what we offer. And we're just there to listen. We're there to offer advice. We're there to, you know, connect people to others that are going through the same thing. And we're the first nonprofit to do it here in Canada. And we're volunteer-led. If somebody wanted more information or wanted to volunteer with your organization, how should they reach out to you? So they can reach out by going to our website, which is mygutfeeling.ca, and they could volunteer, There's, or they can join us if they have any questions. Uh, they can email us at info at mygutfeeling.ca. We're also, on November 30th, having a conference where we bring patients and the medical community together to, you know, open dialogue, educate, raise awareness and advocacy. So we have an all-day conference where both patients and oncologists uh, speak, and it's very interactive. You, it's in Toronto, and it, you can attend, people can attend in person or they can join virtually, and all that information is on the website. We also have Stomach Cancer Awareness Day, whereby cities across Canada from Victoria to Halifax 
will be lighting up in periwinkle blue uh, to help us raise awareness and funds for uh, stomach cancer, which is one of the least funded uh, cancers in Canada and one of the least ones that has any awareness. Most people don't even know that you can get stomach cancer. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website, tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss healthy digestion and the holidays, appreciation of the present moment, a natural approach to healthy skin, and how to eat out well in Toronto for under $150 a couple. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.